Our scripture reading today is going to be from Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 31. So again, Genesis 1, 3 through 31. Listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together as we prepare to approach God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come now um, by your Spirit, that you would lead us and speak to us, uh, remind us that the very God who spoke the universe and all that exists into being is the same God who speaks this morning to us from His Word. And we pray this morning that you would deal with all of us, that you would meet us where we are in our fears, in our anxieties, in our sorrow, in our joy, uh, in our excitement to be here, in our skepticism and doubts, that you would come and remind us together of the deep, deep love of Jesus, that you would remind us from your word that we No matter how we come this morning, we really are all the same because we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. Um, But we all need to hear the good news of the gospel, that because of Jesus, His person and work, we are also at the same time far more loved and accepted, secure and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. So take us to this good news this morning, we pray and transform our lives with it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And the children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to your children's church. So if you get up and make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. So last week we began our series, a new series through the book of Genesis. And, you know, Genesis, it's the story of beginnings or origins. And last week we introduced it by talking about the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. And in those few verses we saw that life really has meaning and purpose because God is the origin of all things. And we talked about how God, through the power of His Word, brought order to chaos, and we talked about how God, who has existed for all eternity in love and relationship, being the Trinity, how He created the world out of love, and therefore love and relationship and community are at the very heart of the universe and of who we were made to be. Um, And this morning, we're going to consider the remainder of Genesis chapter 1 as we talk about creation's story. A four-year-old boy came inside uh, his house from playing in the backyard with his his little friend Jimmy, and he found his mom, and he abruptly asked her, where did I come from? And immediately his mom's mind and heart started to race. Um, She wasn't prepared to give the birds and the bees talk quite so early um, to a four-year-old. But at the very same time, she knew she had to say something to him. Um, And so as best as she could, she stumbled through an explanation, but all the while delicately trying to choose appropriate words for a four-year-old. And when she finished, she took what felt like, you know, her first breath in minutes. Um, 
And uh, all in all, as she reflected on that brief moment, um, she was very pleased with herself. Um, She was happy with the good answer that she gave and how delicately she gave it. And then her four-year-old son turned to head back outside in the backyard, and as he turned to leave, he said to his mom, oh, Jimmy says he's from Indiana. Um, You know, all of a sudden, okay. Um, With Genesis, we need to be very, very careful that we aren't trying to force the Bible to give answers to questions it was never intended to answer. Uh, The scholar Conrad Hires, he uses a great phrase to describe much of our thinking, and he calls it intellectual imperialism. Um, He wrote this, one of the consequences of intellectual imperialism is that instead of bringing all knowledge under its dominion, it reduces knowledge to its own dimensions. It is imperialistic in aspiration, but reductionist in result. That's a mouthful to just sit there and listen to, right? But here's what he's saying. He's saying when we try to bring the Bible under our modern scientific understanding of the world, we end up reducing knowledge to those particular scientific dimensions. Um, you know, this may interest only a handful of you uh, right now, but I need to tell you, we're not going to get into a discussion of the different views of creation's days here. Um, the literal 24-hour day view, the day-age view, the, the um, punctuated activity view, the framework view, the analogical view, there are a number of views, as you can see, right? And I'm not suggesting or saying that those aren't valuable discussions to have. I, I think there are, and I would be glad to have those discussions with you, but not now, at another time. Um, and, and here, see, here's what I want to say to you. If we're going to take seriously that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word, that really drives us to deal with Genesis and the rest of the Bible on its own terms. And so our goal then is really to wrestle with the answers to the questions that it was intended to answer. You see, to our modern scientific world, um, how questions are all important. But it was why questions that were most important to Moses who wrote this down for us and for his original audience. Um, And ultimately, I would argue with you that it's why questions that are really deeper and more profound questions for us to deal with. Um, Why you exist, why life matters, why this world fills you with awe at one moment and then terrifies you in the next moment why we ache for freedom, and yet we feel so shackled and enslaved in life. If you, you know, if you are mainly interested this morning in how questions, this introduction may leave you feeling a little bit disappointed and dissatisfied, but I do hope that you'll stay engaged because Moses' why questions and answers um, really have a lot to say to us and a lot to apply to our lives. So, 
Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about three things in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Um, first, we're going to talk about creation's rulers. And then second, we're going to talk about creation's goodness. And then third, we're going to talk about creation's song, okay? Creation's rulers, creation's goodness, and creation's song. First, creation's rulers. Now, I need you to listen to me carefully just for a minute or so here. Your life was never meant to be ruled by creation. You were meant to be free and to rule over creation. But to be the ruler you were meant to be, you have to submit to creation's order. Try to rule over creation without submitting to God as the supreme ruler of your life, and you will be ruled and enslaved by creation. Now, let me back up and show you. Genesis 1-2 told us that the, that the world was without form and void. It's saying it, it was shapeless, and it was empty, right? So, what's the remainder of Genesis chapter 1 telling us? It's telling us how God shaped and gave form to the world and how He filled those forms with rulers, okay? So, see, days one through three, if you look at this and go back and read it, you'll see that those, those days are primarily about God giving the world shape and form. And then when you get to days four through six, you see that those days are all about God filling those forms with beings and rulers. See, here, I'm going to run through it quickly with you here, right? On day one, God created the form of time, day and night. And then on the corresponding day four, God cre- we're told God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to fill that form. Verse 16, a greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And on day two, we read that God created the forms, water and the sky. So on the corresponding day five, God created sea creatures, right, and fish to fill the seas and birds to fill the sky. On day three, God gathered, gathered the waters and He formed the dry ground. So on the corresponding day six, God created animals and man to fill that form. See, there was an astoundingly beautiful orderliness and purposefulness to creation's story. Moses was the author of Genesis, Moses. The guy many of you probably remember was the guy that God raised up and used to lead His people, Israel, out of their slavery in Egypt. Now, let me just put one day of creation in the spotlight for a moment. For 400 years, Israel had lived in Egypt, and they were immersed in an Egyptian culture that worshipped things like the sun and the moon. And now Moses was saying, here's the true origin, here's the true beginning of creation's story. The sun and moon were created by the one true God. He's the true king, he's the true Lord, he's the supreme ruler over all that exists. But at the very same time, Moses recognized their greatness, right? They were made to be rulers over the forms of day and night. Now listen, I'm using the words sun and moon, but did you notice that those words aren't in Genesis chapter 1? 
They aren't there. Instead, they're simply called in verse 16, a greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Now, why is that? It's because in Egypt, the names of the sun and moon were the names of gods that they worshiped. I mean, it's really genius what what Moses is doing here, right? Moses is saying the sun and moon are great. They're even rulers over day and night, but they aren't gods. You know, if you study Genesis 1 closely, you'll see that each day's creation is really an argument against the idolatry that they came out of in Egypt. But you'll also see this. With each day of creation, every being created is higher than the one that came before, right? And they rule, and they exercise dominion over those forms. The plants have a certain dominion over the soil. The birds have a certain dominion over the sky, the sea creatures over the seas, the animals over the earth. And it all culminates in Genesis 1 verse 26 with the creation of man. And it's in verse 28 and following that we see that man is set up to rule over all the rulers of creation, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and so on. Rulers over the rulers. Because I grew up with a dad in the military, a military brat. And um, so I grew up in a chain-of-command world, right? You need to know who your superior is, and you need to know who is under your command in the military. So when my dad was a captain, that meant some were under his command, but it also meant that he had a lot of superiors above him. Um, Things changed when he was promoted to being a colonel and was the wing commander over entire Air Force bases. Um, now there are a lot of people under his command and relatively very few superiors to him. You know, success in the military really depends on an awareness of and a submission to this chain of command. Um, whether you're unaware of it, whether you choose to fight against it or just ignore it, you always do so to your detriment in the military, which is why I became a pastor. I knew I didn't want any of that world. Um, I saw it. Listen, you were meant to be free. You were meant to rule over the rulers of creation. But if you refuse to make God the supreme ruler of your life, if you step outside of that chain of command… You do so to your detriment, and you will be ruled and enslaved by creation. Listen, let me give you three quick examples here. Money, relationships, and children. Right? If you make money the center of your life, you are going to be ruled and enslaved by money. To gain it, you will compromise all kinds of things. And to lose it won't just make you sad if you've made it the center of your life. No, it'll crush you. It'll cause you to lose your identity. You won't know who you are without it. If you make relationships the center of your life, you will constantly make bad relational decisions. You'll be too needy on the one hand, or you'll be too controlling on the other hand. You'll be enslaved and ruled. You'll demand too much of someone else that he or she make you happy in life. 
or you won't know how to stand up for yourself. If you make your children the center of your life, you, you are going, to, you are destined to rise and fall with all their failures and all their successes in life. You will be enslaved. Your identity will be wrapped up in who they are and what they become and what they do. Do you realize what the opening chapter of Genesis is really saying? It's saying, it's saying you were made to be under God and under nothing else. You were made to be free and not enslaved to anything. But if you don't put yourself under God, if He's not your center, you will be enslaved to everything else in life, and it will crush you. Listen, there's beauty and there's terror in what we've just talked about. We were made to be free, and we were made to rule. But Paul says about all of us, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he says this, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. We were made to be free and to rule, but we've stepped out of creation's order. And the question now, as the band, the Matchbox 20 put it years ago, um, showing my age, is this, how do we get it back to good? Remember that song, anybody? I don't know. Anyway, all right, hold on to that thought for a moment. How do we get it back to good? Because second, I want you to see this theme of creation's goodness that runs through Genesis chapter 1. There are lots of repeated refrains throughout Genesis 1 that we could talk about. Uh, And God said um, there was evening and there was morning. But I really want us to focus on this refrain, and God saw that it was good. Right? It's there on every day of creation, and it builds to a crescendo after the creation of man in verse 31, when God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. What does it mean that God was pronouncing creation's goodness? It's something more than just creation passed His inspection, okay? I love I love it when I can get a hold of a project that I can immerse myself in and then literally with my eyes see its completion, right? Restoring an old piece of furniture, maybe sanding it and putting on a coat of stain and finish, and when it's done, to stand back and look at it completed, right? I even, I know this makes me strange to some of you, but I even like mowing my grass in the spring. I don't like it so much late in the summer, but I like it in the spring, just so that I can, after I'm done, I can sit on my porch with a glass of iced tea and I can look at it, right? And it's been edged so neatly and cleanly on the sidewalks and I can still see the fresh rose that I tried to be so straight with, right, in, in my yard. And I love to see it completed like that. Um, putting together a puzzle, right? The moment you put in that last piece and you're able to stand back and say, ah, it's done, it's finished. There's delight is what I'm saying. There's pleasure. There's satisfaction when you can stand back and literally see the completion of your work. Pronouncing creation's goodness. It's more than just God's approval of creation's various functions. Oh, good, it's working. It's more than that. God was taking delight and pleasure joy and satisfaction in what he made. And he was saying, this is beautiful. He was saying, I love it. 
I delight in it. I'm proud of it. I enjoy it. You know, the last thing that we do at the end of our worship service every week, uh, right before we prepare to leave this place, is we, we have the benediction. It's there in your bulletin. And, and I usually say something like, um, you know, lift up your heads and receive the Lord's benediction, something like that. Um, and it's because it's not a prayer. It's a pronouncement. It's a declaration. And it, it comes from the Latin, which means, you know, the good word. You were made to be under this good word. All of God's creation was made to be under this good word. Each day of creation, everything God made was resting under His benediction, His delight, His joy, His pleasure, the sunshine of His face. And this has huge implications for us. Let me give you three. One, creation's goodness means that you were meant and made to enjoy God's creation. God made all things, including you, for His joy and His delight, and it brings Him pleasure, it brings Him satisfaction and delight when you enjoy His good gifts to you, when you delight in a beautiful sunset, when you take your family and you have a picnic at Shelby Farms, when you play with your dog, when you eat really good barbecue in Memphis, right? I do a lot of that. When you go and you listen to an amazing concert at Mud Island. You know, Jesus' first miracle was at a party of all places. And he turned water into wine to save the party. I mean, I I really do think we need some kind of a theology of partying for God's people. Not drinking too much, not getting drunk. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going there. What I'm saying is truly enjoying God's good gifts in His creation. You are meant to enjoy it, and it brings Him delight and satisfaction when you do. But two, here's the flip side of that. Creation's goodness means that we should fight to restore creation's glory. To see the brokenness of God's world, it ought to break your heart and move you to action to protect, to restore, and to rebuild what God sees as good. When you see injustice in the world, when you see poverty or sickness or corruption or discord or oppression, it should move us to involvement, not to withdrawal into our suburban homes behind our, you know, privacy fences or whatever. It should move us to use our gifts, our talents, our resources to fight to restore creation's goodness wherever we see it broken. I love that we're invo- we've involved ourselves in Cordova Elementary School, a school where poverty and broken homes are far more the norm than the exception. And when you hear that we're sending volunteers to help kids learn to read because the structures of their lives don't support that learning… There ought to be far more volunteers than there are slots to fill. Because you should be moved to fight to restore creation's glory wherever it's broken. You ought to be moved to be involved in whatever way you possibly can. Okay, third, number three, creation's goodness means you were were made. You were made to rest under God's good word. You were made to take delight in His delighting of you. 
You are made to live with the confident assurance that God is perfectly pleased and entirely satisfied with you. For Him to look upon you with His smile, for you to know that you are enough to bring joy to His heart. That's the place of real, deep freedom, rest, and joy in your life. But here's the problem. We know we're not good. We know we're broken. We know we're fallen. We know we're stained with sin throughout. And the thing we need, the thing we want most in life, deep down, we know we forfeited it. And this brings me to my last point, creation song. You know, we're taking this wide-lensed approach to creation here to see the vast scope of what God's doing here. The sky, the seas, the land, the sun, moon, stars, birds, every swimming creature in the seas and everything that creeps along the ground and mankind itself. Now, listen, my view of this chapter of the origins of the universe and of the world and everything in it is that this is historical. This is God speaking the universe and everything into being in the space of six days. But listen, it's also hard at the same time not to… it's hard to miss the poetic quality of these verses, the regular refrains, the strophic quality that's there, right? The broad strokes of the artist's paintbrush. The world was without form and void, and then came the poetic, powerful Word of God, And each day was its own verse in a song. And God sang the universe and everything into being. You know, I love how David, the shepherd poet, wrote about God's creation in Psalm 19. I can only imagine that this song came about because of nights on end where he was laying on his back, tending sheep, um, looking up into the heavens. And he wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God created the world, and He made the world to sing, to reflect His beauty back to Him. You know, the babbling brook, the the mountain peaks, the trees that that, that, that are swinging in the wind, right, uh, and swaying in the breeze, the stars, the deer that leaps through the woods, the birds riding the thermals, and chiefly you and me. Mankind made in His image. And we're going to be talking about that more in the weeks to come, but all of creation, Genesis 1 is telling us, reflects the beauty and the majesty and the power and the glory and the love of her Creator. You know, I've read a lot of George Whitfield's sermons. George Whitfield was a preacher in the 1700s, and, um, and I've quoted him a number of times, but um, this is a new one to me. I heard a pre- pastor reference a sermon that I hadn't read, and he said, Whitfield once made a point by saying something like this, haven't you noticed that when you get close to God's creation, that it barks and it growls and it bears its teeth at you? And, and this is what Whitfield said about that. He said, it growls at us because it knows we have a quarrel with its maker. 
I put a quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones on the front of your bulletin, but she also writes in another place that when God made mankind, they joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love, of, of love to the one who made them. We were made to join in creation song, to join that chorus, to be filled with delight in God's delighting in us so that we burst into song. But we're stuck in a quarrel with our Maker. We need to know His delight in us, but we know we forfeited it. Do you realize how deeply we long to join this song? How deeply and desperate we are to be under God's benediction. You know, little kids, when you're a parent, they bring you their pictures to hang on the refrigerator. They show you what they've done, right? And what they're really saying is, you see what I did? Tell me it's good. Tell me I'm good. You know, grown-up men carry such shame and regret throughout their lives, they never felt good enough for their fathers in many cases, right? Whether it was in the classroom or in their careers or on the athletic field, never felt good enough and still trying in some way to get that approval. And grown-up women carry such insecurity and shame, moving from bad relationship to bad relationship, needy and longing to hear and believe you're beautiful, you're enough. And so we turn career and money and the raising of children and our relationships into desperate cries for approval, to hear the good word. We pull them into the center of our lives thinking that if I get that, if I get that good word, then I'll be free, then I'll be able to rest, then I'll have joy. And it leads us further and further from creation song and deeper and deeper into slavery to being ruled by creation instead of ruling over creation. So the question is, how do we get it back to good? How can we find a way back in, into the chorus of creation song? A man named Jesus, who was God Himself, came in the flesh, and He lived the only life worthy of God's benediction. Do you remember his baptism in the opening of the gospel accounts, right? The heavens were torn open, and this voice was heard, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You know what that was? That was benediction. That was the Father's good word to his son. You're enough. You are my delight. I'm satisfied in you. You satisfy the joy of my heart. But three, three years later, Jesus hung on the cross, and there were no words of benediction for him on that day. There was only malediction, the bad word, forsaken, spurned, rejected, cursed, despised. What was going on? And you see that Jesus was taking the malediction that we deserved so that we could have the benediction 
that only He deserved. And when you believe in Him, when you come under Him, not only as your Maker and your ruler, but also as your Savior, He looks at you and He declares, very good. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You're enough, and there's nothing for you to do to earn your father's smile because Jesus already did that for you. And that's your invitation when you hear that. That is your invitation to sing and to join creation song. When you hear him singing to you of your beauty in Jesus, it pulls you into the song. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem. I forget the title of it now. Um, but anyway, there was a stanza in there where she writes, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who, t- who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. It's when you come under Jesus as your supreme ruler and Savior that you begin to see that earth is crammed with heaven. And it's all reflecting God's glory back to Him. And that's when you stop using creation and picking blackberries to get an identity for yourself. And you take off your shoes and you join the chorus of creation song. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is our delight to come before You and to realize again this morning that You are not only our Maker and our Creator, but You are also our Redeemer and our Savior. Father, we, we confess before You that we have often made Your creation the very center of our lives in all kinds of different ways. And because of it, we have fallen back again and again into slavery. When You made us to be enslaved to nothing, when You made us to be free by submitting to You, Father, forgive us, and we pray that You would lead us back into creation song that we would be reminded this morning of the person and work of Jesus, of Jesus who took the malediction so that we, Your people, could know and be assured that we are under Your benediction, under Your good Word. Father, help us that we might delight in Your delighting of us and in us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.